If you've got those Bibles, can we have them open to Galatians chapter 4? Grab your Bibles. We've got these black hardback ones on the ends of the pews. You can pick those up. Turn to page 1171 for Galatians chapter 4. So it's 1171 on those black hardback Bibles. Get that open on your phone. If you've brought your Bible along with you, get that open. We love to have these open just so you can see I'm not making this stuff up. We need to, you need to see what's in there. So Galatians Galatians chapter 4. Now, I'm sure most of us are going to have a family member that you would call a kindred spirit. Now, that might be a mum or a dad, a son or a daughter, a grandparent, a grandchild, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, but, but someone in your family, and I know you love everyone in your family, I hope, but there's going to be someone in your family you just connect with at a really deep level. Now, for me, that was my granddad. He's gone to be with the Lord. He's been with the Lord for about four years now, and I miss him to pieces, but I loved my granddad. We were just like kindred spirits. Now, growing up, he would come and watch me play football. He would we would drive around after football looking for sweets and chocolate at the village shops after football get some fish and chips, and he would take us to country fairs, to the Norfolk show, the Suffolk show, and he always wanted to go and see the chickens, so we'd spend hours in the tents full of chickens. He just loved this kind of stuff. And so when I moved to Chicago for a few years, I called him up every week and said, Granddad, how are you doing? Give some updates on what's going on in the UK. I'll tell you what's going on in the US. And I'd usually finish our conversations with, Granddad, it's been really great to talk to you. Thanks for the updates. Love you lots. Speak to you soon. And, and he would always say, yeah, James, uh, love, uh, uh, bye, nice to talk to you. And I'll call him next week, Grandad, how you doing? Good to finish off the conversation. It, it's been great to talk to you, Grandad. I love you. Speak to you soon. All right, Jamie, bye, mate. See you later. Uh, he'd just have the hardest time being able to say, love you. And I remember one particular time I called him up and said, Grandad, love you. And he said it back. And I was like, yes, he said he loved me. Grandad said it. Now, now, that didn't bother me too much because I knew he loved me to pieces and I loved him too. But he just had the hardest time being able to say, love you, James, or I love you, mate. Uh, thanks for being my grandson. Didn't matter so much to me because I knew he loved me. But I used to think to myself, why is it so hard to say that? Why is it so hard for us to be able to say, love you, or I love you? And I think it's because when things get personal, when things get close, when things get intimate, we tend to resist it. We tend to say, let's just keep this at arm's length. It's too close. It's too much. It's too close to home. Now, we know we can do that in life, and we can know we can do it in different areas of life. And when things get too close, too personal, we just try to step back. I'm going to make the case this morning, I think way too often we do that with the Lord. Way too often we take the very personal, the very intimate, and the very close realities of the gospel, the Christian message, and just say, oh, that's a little bit too close for me. You see what's going in Galatians chapter 4 is that Paul is writing to a church in the region of Galatia, and he's saying to them, look, you need to see these very close and these very personal realities of the Christian message. So that's what this morning is all about. And you need to hear this sentence so you can track with me. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be reviving. We're going to be rediscovering. Rediscovering a very close, very personal, fundamental reality of what it means to be a Christian. I'll say that again so we can log that and get it. Here's where we are this morning. We're reviving, we're rejuvenating, we're rediscovering 
a very close and personal and intimate reality of what the Christian message is all about. So to do that, here's where we're going to go. We're going to say, well, what is this personal reality? What's this cornerstone within the Christian message? What, what is this? And then what we're going to look at is the implications that flow from that. And we'll find three of those. So let's start looking through this. Now, this is something the Reformation 500 years ago, people were very, very excited about this. So let's have those Bibles open. We're in chapter four and we're starting off in verse one. This is really exciting stuff. I'll read the first couple of verses here. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date that is set by his father. Now, that's a tricky couple of verses to understand. I mean, we're seeing heirs, slaves, children, guardians, managers, and looking forward to a date in the future. Now, to understand this, we have to kind of think about what was said in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, Paul has just talked about Abraham and said, well, Abraham, he was an heir, that an heir of the promise, looking forward to the coming of Jesus, not by his good works, but by faith. By Abraham, by faith. Not because he was righteous in and of himself, but it's because he believed in the coming of Jesus. So he was an heir. Now, Paul looks at those who are in the Old Testament and says they were heirs, but they're like children or like slaves, and they're under these strict regimes, the strict boundaries, looking forward to a better future. So what's Paul mean when he says the Old Testament saints, Abraham and the like, were like children or like slaves? Well, let's go back to the first century and kind of think about how children were raised, particularly in the upper class or aristocracy. Now, now a child, if they were born into a rich family, would have likely been raised by someone employed by the family. So I don't know if any of you saw Downton Abbey the last few years, but you know there's, there's the Grantham family, they're, they're high and mighty, and they employ people to raise the children for them. They have these servants, like, like a nanny or a matron or a butler that would raise their children. So it meant that the children didn't really have a close relationship with their parents. That the children would then be sent off to boarding school, they would be away from home, and they had these strict when to get up times and strict when to go to sleep and very strict education. So they had these very tight boundaries and didn't really have closeness with their parents. So what they would do was look forward to the time where they would receive their inheritance and then be able to have that freedom. So what Paul is saying is, look in the Old Testament. They were under the guardian. Chapter 3 is going to say that's the law. Under these strict boundaries, under these strict regimes, looking forward to a time when there would be that personal, close relationship with the Father when God would actually come to dwell with us. And so they were looking forward to that. Now, here's what Paul says. Look, he's turning to the Galatians now, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, the Galatian church isn't going to be a Jewish congregation, so they're not going to have lived under the law. But he's saying, look, look at how the Jews lived, and particularly those who would have twisted the law and said, this is how we find our own righteousness. Look at how they didn't have that personal relationship with God. Look how they had to look forward to this personal relationship with God. Then looks at the Galatians and says, well, we were like that too. Because before we knew God, we were, what's the word, enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. What does Paul mean by that? He's looking at the Galatians and saying, we were once enslaved. 
Now, to understand that, we've got to understand the whole rest of Galatians. What we find in Galatians is Paul basically saying this. You don't find your righteousness in yourself. You don't find the answers to your biggest problems in here. It's not your discipline. It's not your devotion. It's not the righteousness you can somehow pick out of thin air. If you just dig down and find something in yourself, you're not going to find the righteousness. You're not going to find the solutions that you need. That's what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Stop trying to do all these good works. Stop trying to be. Find your righteousness. Find your acceptance before the Almighty on the grounds of your good behavior. You're not going to find it there. So Paul's looking at them and he's saying, that is spiritual slavery. Now, why would that be slavery? Why would he use that word to talk about that thinking? Well, we can see that, can't we? If we are trying to find our righteousness in God's sight by virtue of our good behavior, we're going to be searching for something that we can't find. If we're saying, right, I'm going to find acceptance before the Almighty because I'm going to be a good boy or a good girl, what you're going to find is very quickly, just about all that you are has been tainted by the reality of sin. And so what you end up doing is trying really hard to find it in here and not getting anywhere. You'll end up feeling insecure. You'll live in fear. It will be joyless. There will be no delight because you'll just be in in exhaustion looking. You'll be in change looking for that answer inside of yourself and you can't find it. So Paul's saying to them, you were once slaves. That's how you lived. You were enslaved by that way of thinking. But he's going to say to them, that's not who you are. You don't need to live like this anymore. You don't need to live enslaved like that. What's what's the alternative? This is where it gets exciting. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now we're talking about Jesus. Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. Now here's the really, really exciting bit. So that we might receive adoption as sons. That word sons can be translated sons and daughters. It's an encompassing term. So that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. That's the alternative to this kind of slavery. That's the alternative to looking for an answer in anything outside of Jesus. That is where that freedom from that slavery is found. Really interesting word in the original language, this word adoption. It's two Greek words smashed together. Euios, which is going to mean son or child, and thesis or thesa. That's going to mean placed. Smash those two words together. What do you get? Son or child placed. Son placed, child placed, so that we might receive son placed, child placed as sons and daughters. Now, a lot of people are going to make the case, well, this word adoption, Paul is taking from the Roman idea of adoption, which was this legal process by which a child was welcomed into a family, but kept at some kind of a distance. But Paul's talking about that kind of adoption. Of course he is. No. I think if we read the rest of Paul's literature in the Bible and then the rest of the New Testament, what we're going to find is that when we become Christians, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
and then united to Jesus Christ and then reconciled to God the Father. So what happens when we become Christians is that our eyes are opened through faith to the reality of what Christianity is all about. We are united to Jesus. What do I mean by that? All that, it, all that is ours is placed on Jesus. And all that is his is given to us, even himself. So when Paul says son placed or child placed, I think what he's saying is placed in the son, united to him. So it goes from just some kind of impersonal legal transaction to something very close, very personal, very intimate. The Holy Spirit indwells us, unites us to Jesus, placed in the Son, and then we're reconciled to to the Father. So that all that Jesus is, is given to you and me. So we are adopted, placed in the Son, and they're reconciled to the Father. Now what Paul's going to do in this, and this, I think this is so exciting, he then draws out the logic. He says, if that is true, if we are sons and daughters of the Almighty, if we're in this cosmic, eternal family, then what does that mean? What blessings do we get to live in, live under, live with, live through? Here we go, let's look at verse 6. Drawing out the logic here. And... Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So if we receive that adoption, united to Jesus, we are reconciled to the Father. We have the spirit of the son. Notice he doesn't say Holy Spirit. He doesn't say the spirit of God. He's trying to emphasize the fact that we are now in the family. It is the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the son is now in our hearts, enabling us to cry. To cry out. Now that's not a cry out as in I've cut my knee and I'm a little bit upset or somebody's nicked my seat in church kind of cry. No, it's not that. It's a, it's a deep, spontaneous, confident plea that comes out from the deepest possible places inside of you. That's what that cry is. But notice, what are we crying out? Abba, Father. Abba Abba's this Aramaic word which can be translated dad. Some people are going to make the case can be translated daddy. It's that personal. We are in Israel a couple of, uh, year, about a year and a half ago and Rosie slipped over in a market in Jerusalem and our Israeli friend picked her up to try and comfort her. So she's bawling her eyes out and she's looking around for me. She's crying out, dad, I want dad, I want dad, I don't want you, John, I don't want you. She's like, all right, we'll go and find your dad then. Picked him up, picked, picked Rosie up and trying to comfort her, singing a song in Hebrew. And then he goes, Let's go find Abba. Let's go find Abba. Abba, Abba, Abba. And hands Rosie to me and says, there's Abba. I was like, I get it. Galatians 4, we see the same in Romans chapter 8. Rosie's crying out for Abba. So adoption as sons and daughters enables us to cry out to God as our father. Here's our first point. Adoption means, it's our first implication, means that the father is our Father. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, I've I've heard this before. I've done a study on the Lord's Prayer and I know the first line. It says, Our Father. I I, I know it's really intimate. I know it's really personal and that's wonderful. But in my experience, Christians way too often think about this in terms of being figurative. We think about it in terms of being metaphorical or just an analogy. We don't have anything better to say, so we just call him our Father. 
But the way the Bible's going to talk is to say that this is a reality. That he actually is our Father. And because we are in Jesus, get this. Jesus shares with us what is most precious to him. What is that? His relationship with the Father. Now I've got this book. found a story in here a few weeks ago. This book is called Home for Good. And it's written by Chris Kendaya. And it's a book to support the work of a charity called Home for Good. And Home for Good seeks to uh, find, works with the services and seeks to find homes for children who need foster care and adoption. Beautiful book, Bible-centered, gospel-centered book. And at the end of each chapter, we get a little story about someone's adoption or foster care experience. Now, I know this is a story of human adoption, but I think it points beautifully to our adoption by God. Now, read the, uh, let me read this to you. It's a story. It's called Dave's Story. This is a story of one such child, my daughter, Sasha, and our journey through international adoption. She was sitting on top of the jungle gym, a sad expression in her eyes, watching us play volleyball with the other children. She seemed interested in what we were doing, yet rather guarded. After a little coaxing, she joined the group at the Russian orphanage, creating bracelets out of multicolored string. My wife Lisa sat next to her and got her smiling, and our four girls joined in in the fun-making bracelets, eating watermelon and playing. This was the first day we met Sasha at an orphanage in Siberia, where we were living for an extended summer in 2005. Over the next three years, we spent a lot of time with Sasha during the summer and winter camps and other orphanage outreach efforts. She grew close to our family. And during our summer camp efforts, from cuddling up with a book on my wife's lap to spending an entire day hand in hand with my youngest child at camp, At the end of the last camp, all of the orphans boarded a bus and headed back to town. Sasha's hand pressed hard against the window, tears rolling down her cheeks, saying goodbye. It was a picture I'll never forget. But over the next six months, our kids kept pressing us to adopt Sasha. We shared all of the reasons it wasn't possible. We were living living on a missionary salary. We already had four kids, and it's expensive to adopt internationally. But despite our protests, the question continued, why can't we adopt Sasha? During a worship service, the Lord put Sasha on my heart to the extent that I was face down weeping for her. I was not aware that at the same time, five seats to my left, my wife Lisa was in the same position, crying for the little girl, crying for the little girl that God was calling us to adopt. Our girls were then aged 10 to 17, but they enthusiastically supported the decision, laughing and crying tears of joy. At 15 years old, Sasha was considered an older orphan with some medical issues, and her prospects of adoption were slim. She had lived in three different orphanages over six years and received very little education. She needed a family. Her only remaining relatives in Russia were unable or unwilling to adopt her. Miraculously, in six months... She was our daughter. Today is the fourth anniversary of her adoption. We love her and we're thrilled that she is our daughter. And she is happy to be in a loving family. This is what Sasha writes about her adoption. So today is the day when I became part of the most wonderful family in the entire world. They are the most wonderful people in the whole world. And I'm the luckiest person in the whole world. I love you guys. I couldn't ask for a better family. Your presence has made my life so much better. 
and it's always going to be like this. I think that's a pretty stunning story of a human-to-human adoption. But these kinds of stories point us to a bigger, better, more cosmic picture of what it means to be included into a family, to have a relationship with the Father that we didn't ever have before. Surely, this incredible news, and it's not just figurative speaking, he really is our Father. But Paul's going to keep going. We've got two more implications to see here. Look at verse 7. So you are no longer a, what's that word? Slave, but a son. I'll read that again. So you are, this is another implication. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. So this is a complete reversal in status. Where we go from finding an answer outside of Jesus, endlessly and exhaustively looking to find a hope, and then realizing that the hope that we need is actually in Jesus, so there is a complete reversal of our identity, a complete reversal of our status, and we are now different. Now in John 17, Jesus says that the world may know we are one, I'm going to go there. I'm going to forget it. (laughs) Let's go back to John 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. This is verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's Jesus praying. So that the world may know, Father that you love them even as you have loved me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? That the relationship he has with the Father, the pleasure and the delight and the joy that the Father has over the Son, Jesus is saying that we have that over us too. We normally like talking about this, do we? Can I say that again? The delight, the joy and the pleasure that the Father has over the Son is now yours and mine for the taking. In the same way that God loves the Son, because we're united to Jesus, we share in that. So, God's affection for the Son is the root of His affection for you and me, that He actually feels that for us. So now, we are not slaves, but we are sons and daughters. What's our second implication here? Adoption means that we have intimacy with God. We're not slaves, we're His children. Now, this is normally where it gets a little bit tough. It gets a little bit tense. It gets a little bit awkward because we start to feel ourselves say, I like thinking about the gospel in the abstract. I I like thinking that um, Jesus died on the cross for me. He rose again from the dead. And now I can have new life. The gospel means I can be set free and have the hope of eternity. That's wonderful. I can have that now. But we put it at distance. What are we finding right here? That it's coming a little bit too close. It's coming a bit too personal. But it's not something distant that happened 2,000 years ago and we have no personal interaction. It's just not cognitive platitudes. But actually, this relationship with the Father is a continued experience in the person of Jesus Christ. We have intimacy with God. Now, there's many reasons we have a hard time talking about this. There's 101 reasons in this room, I'm sure, we don't like talking about this. It doesn't sound very manly. 
Maybe we've had a hard time thinking through this word. I, I, I know, I, I, I see that. But what are we seeing right here? And I'm not making no apologies because it's the truth of the gospel. We have intimacy with this Father because of who we are in Jesus Christ. Here's what Luther wrote about this. You are so cemented in Christ that he and you are as one person. We are members of the body of Christ, of his flesh and of his bones, in such a way that this faith couples Christ and me more intimately than a husband is coupled to his wife. Pretty strong terminology from Luther, but he's reading the same Bible we are. What happens when we talk about this? I don't want to talk about this. Keep it at arm's length. It's too personal for me. I don't want to talk about God in that terminology. What are we seeing right here in the scripture? That. Now, earlier this summer, I was in Washington State, and it was a gorgeously hot day. I wouldn't want to talk about hot weather too much, because I look outside and feel rather miserable. But, but we went to Washington earlier this summer to see the in-laws. And I love Quincy's family, because they're, they're very fun-loving, they're spontaneous, they're free-spirited. And so you never know what's going to happen in the average day. So the, the, the sun's out, people have a day off, so we decide to jump in the back of the truck and go a couple hundred yards down the road to jump in the river. And so we sat by the river, we were eating our lunch and just enjoying each other's company. And then Quincy's family just kind of leaps into this ice cold river. Now this river comes off glaciers, so it is stingingly cold. This, this is like needles when you jump into it. But they were all splashing around, having a wonderful time saying, James, you need to get in. And there's like seven year olds swimming. And I'm like, that's too cold for me. And they're like, what has Britain done for you? Done to you? It's made you soft, hasn't it? You need, you need to know what it, what it means to jump in cold water. So, I gave in to the peer pressure and I thought, I can't take this. So, I, so I, I edged my way over to the river and stuck my toes in. Oh, it was like needles on the end of my feet. This is freezing. How can they be having so much fun? How can this bring them so much delight? So I stuck my foot in and thought, well, I've got to give in to the peer pressure. I've got to prove I'm tough enough right now. So I leapt into the river and swam around. Now just went under the water, lifted my head up and just shouted because it was so cold and started swimming around trying to get warmer and just all tense and thinking, I don't like this. This is too cold. I can't take this. And then Quincy's dad looks at me and goes, Jimmy, just relax. You'll love it. No, I want to get out back into the sunshine. And then I just started to relax and let my shoulders go, got my head under again and just kind of swam around under the water. I thought, actually, this is incredibly refreshing. 33 degrees out there. I need to be in this right now. But what was I doing? Resisting. I want nothing to do with this. I want to get out. I'm in here, but I don't like it. And then I just embrace it. And I just relax. And I just look at it for what it is. Oh yeah, this is fantastic. I love this. How often do we do that when we come to truths like this? I don't like this. I know I'm talking about how much God takes pleasure in me, that he's delighted in me because I'm in Jesus. I don't want much to do with this. What does the gospel say? That if you're in Jesus Christ, the same pleasure that God the Father has over the Son is directed to you as well. I wonder how many of us would experience radically changed lives if we just drank that truth in. I wonder how many of our detrimental thinking patterns and, and our behavior would be changed if we just said, I'm not a slave anymore. And that God loves me. 
And that in the person of Jesus Christ, he is delighted in me. I mean, how, how different would we be if we just got that? If we stopped swimming around resisting it and just said, hang on a second, the king loves me. I'm in Jesus Christ and I have an eternity that has been set for me. Wouldn't we change how we relate with people? Wouldn't we change how we interacted with fearful situations? Wouldn't we change how we dealt with some of the hard people in our lives? Surely this is the kind of truth that changes everything. Theologian Todd Billings writes, and I love this first sentence, adoption by the king is such a radical notion, we resist it. We would rather have the occasional brush of God's presence or a relic of his solidarity with us, so that God can be an appendage of our identity. But God wants more than that. He wants our lives, our adopted identity, bringing us into a new reality of the Spirit. We can call out to God, Abba, Father, as adopted children in Christ. Adoption means we have intimacy with God. But there's one more thing I want us to take a look at. Second half of verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. What's Paul saying right there? What's an heir? Well, someone who's looking forward to an inheritance. That's who we are. We have a hope beyond this life. We have God's present affection right now, but we have the hope of eternal perfection. We have his present delight and his present joy over us, even though we are sinners, even though we get it wrong, and we have a hope for the future. So what does that give us? That gives us a security. That gives us an attachment that our hearts need. That gives us something sure. That gives us the assurance we are just craving so that one day we will get that. Romans chapter 8, what does Paul say? What does he say? We have not been given the spirit of fear to fall back into slavery, but the adoption as sons, by which we can cry up a father. We're not to live in this kind of fear, that slave mentality. But what have we been given? A hope, an assurance, a future Something to look forward to so that it changes the way we live in the present. So here's our third implication of adoption. Adoption means our future is certain. Now, if we could cling on to this, if we could cling on to the fact that our future is certain, doesn't that just radically change how we live now? If we know that it's certain, we don't fear as much, do we? If we know this is certain, we don't... don't, worry and get caught up with, ang- with anxiety as much as we did. Or, or when relationships fall apart and it's just not how we thought life was going to work out. We've got a hope. And that hope is going to enable us to transcend such pain, such uncertainty, such confusion, and such struggle. Our future is certain. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most famous preachers in the UK, perhaps the world of the last century, amazing, amazing quote. He said, our, biggest, our chief defect as Christians is that we fail to realize Christ's love for us. Now, he could have said, our chief defect as Christians is that we can't regularly attend church. He said, our, our chief defect as Christians is that we can't treat people nicely. Our chief defect as Christians is that we hoard. Our chief, he didn't say that. Our chief defect as Christians is that we fail to understand Christ's love for us. If we could get this, doesn't that 
change absolutely everything. You might be sitting there this morning, sitting, well, James, you don't know. You don't know how sinful I am. I I know I've received God's grace, but I have a checkered past. You you don't know how rotten I am. I'm an absolute worm. I've belittled God every step of the way. I'm corrupt in every fiber of my being. James, can we just quit talking about this adoption stuff? Can we stop talking about God's delight in the Son is the same delight for us? Uh, Can we just stop talking about being sons and daughters? That's a bit too close, because if you knew me, you would see that I'm rotten. What have I got to say to you? Me too. Let's turn the page and read the other half of the gospel. While we were sinners, let's finish that, Christ died for us. Even though we were rotten, even though we went our own way, even though we belittled God, he said, I'm going to send my son because I love you and you're going to be my children and you're going to be in my family. So if that's you thinking you're very rotten, great, finish the end of the story and see what this gospel is all about. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, People have hurt me. And, and people have spent their lives telling me I'm a nobody. And when you say, I'm a son or a daughter, that's really hard for me to take. I mean, I've just walked around my life believing nobody wants anything to do with me. And so when you say I'm a son or a daughter of God the Father because I'm in Jesus and empowered by the Spirit, uh, I just I don't want much to do. It's hard. I know it is. But my message to you is you will find healing in this truth. That God the Father in the Son will look at all of those statements that people have made. All of those haunting echoes of hurt. He will look at those and say, no, 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 no. You're my child and I see no stain on you. You are mine. So if that's you, can you just, can you hear that? Can you stop holding it at arm's length? Can you just see the personal reality of adoption in the gospel right here? And lastly, you might be sitting there thinking, James, this is a bit mushy, all this uh, talk about intimacy with God. I'm I'm a bit of a man's man. This is a bit lovey-dovey, a bit sugar-coated, pink and fluffy. I mean, I don't want to talk about this kind of stuff. I mean, oh, come on. Can we just tell people they're sinners and get on with it? Well, for you, put the guard down. We're all humans in here. Let's come face to face with this gospel. What are we seeing? We're seeing that by his grace, we have been united to Jesus. And all that is his has been given to us. We are in his family. That which is most precious to Jesus, his relationship with the Father, has become ours too. So we don't live like slaves. You don't live in that fear. You don't live in that anxiety. You don't live at God, from God with this kind of a distance. What does the gospel say? That we have become his kids. Surely that's a truth that would change every facet of our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your word and for Paul's message to the Galatians. Lord, way too often we're in the Galatian shoes, living like slaves, thinking like slaves forgetting who we really are. But Lord, we pray this morning, you would help us to live in the delight of the gospel. We would see that your pleasure, your delight, and your joy over your, in your son is the delight 
the pleasure and the joy you see in us. That we would see your joy over us is rooted in your joy over Jesus. And we're in him, so we have that. Help us to live in the liberating, free truth, freeing truth that we are your children. And we're praying this because we can, in Jesus' name. Amen.